Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Peter Kreeft is a Christian philosopher. He said, one uh, of all the doctrines in Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to believe, and the first to be abandoned. The critic's case against it seems very strong, and the believer's duty to believe it seems unbearable. Ouch. So that's the topic for today. I have 30 minutes to unpack the doctrine of hell, which seems like really an exercise in futility. This week I'd read over 100 pages of theological and philosophical discussions, and I've read many more than that over many years. And yet, after all of that, the doctrine of hell still troubles me. Intellectually, there are parts I can't grasp. Emotionally, I still want to reject the whole idea of it. And spiritually, well, of course, I want to avoid it at all costs. It's a difficult question, so very fitting in our series on hard questions. So one of the ways it has been phrased is how can a supposedly loving God torture people in hell for all of eternity? How could this be? And so I want to I start our conversation by talking about what hell isn't. I want to kind of go after some of the misconceptions that we have out there. Charles Templeton, he was a former evangelist contemporary of Billy Graham, a friend of Billy Graham's, uh, and turned atheist. And he once said that I couldn't hold someone's hand to a fire for a moment, not an instant. How could a loving God, just because you don't obey him and do what he wants, torture you forever? Not allowing you to die, but forcing you to continue in that pain for eternity. There is no criminal who would do this. You get the picture, right? It's as if you had to enter the pit of despair. And, and you're welcomed by this not-so-friendly face. And, and he hooks you up to the machine. And then, of course, they gleefully stand by while you are being tortured. And, any Princess Bride fans, I hope? All right, all right. So we got... This is sort of the picture, but of course, hell is not a torture chamber, and God is not gleefully standing there holding your hand to a fire. God takes no delight 
in the death of the wicked. There is, in fact, heartbreak in God over any that would be in hell. When people can, I was reading this this week as one of the examples that uh, one of the authors said, he says, you know, when, when, we, when, our, when our, our ancestors here came to this country, they, they were leaving Europe and they were trying to develop a new society. They didn't hit the ground and start building jails. In fact, they wanted a better society. It would be great if you could have a society without them. But of course, very quickly, they had to build jails. They had to build prisons because, of course, not everyone was willing to live by the social order. And in a similar way, God needs a place to imprison immortal souls, and that's a key idea, immortal souls who rebel against his social order. It wasn't even meant for, for people. The scriptures tell us it was meant for Satan and the demons. And you say, well, yeah, okay, well, you say it's not a torture chamber, but then why all the gruesome images? We got fire and we got darkness and we have worms that never die and gnashing of teeth and all of this kind of stuff. That's pretty horrible stuff. And, of course, I think it's helpful for us to recognize that, that these images, it's apocalyptic language, and there are often times in the scriptures where these images are actually metaphors trying to communicate something else. The images themselves aren't the reality, but they do represent a very real and true reality. You might say, well, that seems a little bit out there, kind of liberal in the, what, you, what you're saying here, but it's actually not because, because you, you have to interpret the scriptures in their context. And so, for instance, when, when they say that hell has fire and it's a place of darkness, you can kind of already see the contradiction in this, right? It can't actually, fire produces light. If you had fire, you can't have darkness. Like the, the two don't represent, the fi fire is of course a disintegration of self and darkness is a symbol of our loneliness, our separation. The gnashing of teeth, this is another, you know, do people really gnash their teeth? They're grinding their teeth for all of time? Like, is that like a Dante kind of inferno punishment? They just stand there gnashing their teeth all? No, the gnashing of teeth is what angry and bitter and rebellious people do. They gnash their teeth in anger, which means when it's talking about the gnashing of teeth in hell, the conversation is about how even in hell we are still in our anger and our rebellion against God. See, the, the images, they mean something. But we can't just take them as they are. I mean, you, you know, the Bible says that Jesus is a lamb. <laughs> All right, come on. Like, are we going to get to heaven and be like, oh, he's so cute. It's like goat yoga with Jesus. Like it, like it doesn't even make any... He's also a lion, by the way. So which one do you want to pick? Like, does he alternate days, odd days? He's like, it doesn't... He's got a sword coming out of his mouth and he comes on, on blazing fire. And so he chokes on his own words. Like we would say, of course not. The authors meant to tell us something about him through those images. But they're not literal in that way. So the context of these things really does matter. By the way, I'm not saying that that means that hell is not as bad as it seems. In fact, we'll, we'll see in a little bit, it's quite the contrary. I'm just saying that the idea that this is a torture chamber where people are forced to go against their will to experience agony because, you know, somehow God got 
you know, upset and they couldn't follow his rules exactly the way he wanted them to. I'm just saying this is an inaccurate caricature of the biblical picture of hell. You might say, all right, still, but why would God send people there? Why? And the idea of God sending people there is not is also not a, the best way of understanding this. You know, we kind of have this idea, like God is this angry dad who sort of loses his cool, and then he abuses his power, and he shouts, don't tick me off or I'm going to send you to your room. But in this case, you know, you know, it's dad's really God, and his power is actually infinite, and your room is a fiery pit of despair. Like that, you know, it's kind of the idea we get. Some of us, you know, kind of... So you might have grown up with that guy, and so your, your picture of this, it fits so well with your own painful childhood. But that's not the way the Bible explains this at all. Unbelievably, we choose hell through a thousand decisions through over the course of our lives, as unbelievable as it sounds, through our own hard-hearted rejection of God's overtures, it is actually what we want. And it sounds impossible to believe, and yet we see it all the time. Because it's not God who desires it, quite the opposite. God actually doesn't want it for anyone. For instance, in Ezekiel 33, Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? God is pleading. I mean, he is literally pleading with us to turn away from the path of destruction, the path of death. He takes no pleasure in the death or the suffering of anyone. We see it again in 2 Peter. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's what he wants. That's his heart. You read through the scriptures and you see it over and over and over again. At the very end, the last book of the Bible, it's Revelation chapter 3. He says, here I am. This is Jesus speaking. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. He's saying, I want to be with you. I want fellowship with you. I want to share life together. Just open the door. This, is, this verse has inspired a great deal of art throughout the ages. This is one of the famous paintings called Light of the World, William Holman Hunt, 1853. It's hanging in Oxford. And of course, as you look at it, you get to see kind of what, how he interpreted this idea in Revelation. The weeds are sort of growing up in front of the door. There's even vines that have made their way up the door because this door doesn't open. The person on the other side is refusing to open. And of course, it's, it's dark out. Is it, is it sunrise or is it sunset? It looks, like, it looks like it might be the end of day. It might be that, that the dark is coming. And the only light here 
is the light that Jesus himself brings, and that's what he's actually offering. But his face is sad because he's continuing to knock. And he's knocking, and he's knocking, and he's pleading, and he's saying, I'm here. Open the door. And the most troubling part of this painting is that there's, there's no doorknob on the outside. Because this door only opens from one side. Jesus doesn't force his way in. He respects you and humanity and your decision. If you don't want to open the door, you don't have to. And yet he stands on the other side asking you to, please open the door. C.S. Lewis picking up this idea, he said, the door of hell is locked from the inside. In another place, he said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. This is hard. But the scriptures paint a picture of God continually reaching out. Going to extreme measures. And us continuing to reject him. Some might say yes, but to be punished infinitely, to suffer for eternity for finite crimes. I mean, doesn't that make hell a little bit of overkill? I mean, how, how is that fair? How is that right? It doesn't seem just. But it doesn't take much for us to really kind of work our way through that. So the degree to which a person suffers isn't correlated to the amount of time that it actually takes to commit a crime, right? We, we, we sort of intuitively know that. So if you have a, you know, a, you're working for a company and you have been skimming a little off the top over, say, 10 years, and you've accumulated now $10,000, it's taken you 10 years to commit the crime, and you will receive a certain kind of punishment when you are caught. But if you were to kill someone in cold blood, it might take 10 seconds. So you should get punished less for that crime? No, the amount of time that we commit the crime isn't actually a factor in deciding what kind of punishment follows. It's the seriousness and it's the object of the crime is all that really matters. And so, of course, when you apply that to God, we start to see that God now is of infinite value. And he has told us the single most important thing, the, the one great overarching commandment in all of his scriptures is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do these two things, you love God and you love people with everything you have, then all of humanity will be benefited. All of it will be blessed. There will be more hope and joy and peace throughout the world. And if you violate that, you will be living apart from God's plan for humanity. That's his great commandment. And the violating of this great commandment against a God of infinite worth and value carries a punishment, a suffering that is eternal.
You might say, well, what about those then who have never heard about Jesus? And this is a, this is a tough topic because most of us have heard anecdotal evidence where, you know, somebody, a, a missionary finds this tribe and all of a sudden there's, a, there's people that already understand about God and his forgiveness and they had visions and they, God made himself clear to them and, and they tell these stories and you're like, wow, maybe in fact God does reveal himself to people all around the, the planet. That might very well be true. And, and we've heard enough stories that it does seem, and I hope that when we get into heaven, we go, wow, I'm surprised there's so many folks here who, like, it seemed like they didn't know, they didn't have access to know, but, you know, somehow God, in his infinite wisdom and his mercy, and it, it worked out, and, and, and we hope and we continue to pray that that's what it's actually going to be like. But, but then we get to the other side of this question, because we also know that the scriptures are constantly encouraging us to go and tell, to go and share our story, to offer the hope. So it seems, though it, it, it happens, it doesn't seem as likely or as hopeful. I mean, this is really the main motivation of what we're supposed to be doing as, as a people of God, as the church. We're supposed to be going out and making certain. This is the why. why. Why are we supposed to be so incredibly motivated? Why were the apostles willing to die? It's because we, we, we understand the consequences. And so we go. Cheryl and I are in New York for this reason. When, when we graduated school, we wanted to kind of come out and find a place where we could do ministry. And we wanted to be doing it in a place that it really mattered. Where else but New York? This is the most fantastic field for the work of God. I actually know people who are still here in New York, even though, you know, they could have transferred jobs and they could have gone to North Carolina and they could have lived a whole lot cheaper and they could have, like, you know, got their big house and all the cars and all that kind of stuff and put their kids in private school. And they have decided to stay in New York because of the importance of the mission here. Because this is the front line. As goes New York, so goes the nation. Why does that matter? Because of the truth of hell. Some would say, yes, but judgment, it's simply incompatible with God's love. But of course, even, even thinking about it just a little bit, we can say, no, it can't be. Because, because you, you actually, are, our souls still cry out for justice. We want there to be some form of right and wrong. We know it ought to be that way, and we know it is that way, and so we actually cry out for justice, and we may not agree. We may not like the way this is played out, but we can't say that judgment is incompatible with God's love. In fact, an expression of love is judgment. You actually can't really have it without the other. All right, so what is hell. And I just want to start by saying, listen, it doesn't actually matter what we say about it. You're not going to like it. And I think we should just acknowledge that, right? I mean, there's no part of this that you're going to go, oh man, that's awesome. That's cool. That's great. It's not great. It's hell. Like, it's terrible. The whole idea of it is terrible. I was telling someone after it, I was like, you know, I, the, whole, the whole talking about it, the reading about it, the whole week, it's just, it's depressing. There's actually nothing about it where you're going to walk away from this and say, oh, yeah, that's, you know, now I like it. You're not going to. The question isn't whether it's likable. The question is whether it is just, whether it is moral, and really even more importantly, whether it's true. Because if it is, 
It is. And that matters. But I also want to acknowledge that, and, and I think, I, I, I think this, is, this part of it will be self-evident here in a little bit, I hope. Hell is actually troubling to us because of our conception that God is a loving God. All right? Now, now this is... This is, this is kind of, this is kind of the, the, the key point, the key idea I want to get across here. Hell is troubling to us because of our conception of the love of God. But where did we get the idea of God's love? Now, I, 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 I kind of want to go through this step by step here, but here's the problem. I've tried to explain this like over the last couple of weeks to a few different people, and I have butchered it so badly that they looked at me like totally confused and like I hadn't made any sense. So I figured, why not try it with all of you? Does that make sense? But, I, but just, let's, let's, all right, so stick with me here and let's see if I can actually do it this time in a way that isn't humiliating to me. So how do, how do we get the idea of God's love? And you, because you don't get it from philosophy, right? But you all believe that there is a God out there of, of infinite love. We all have this idea. We, we hope it to be true. We want it to be true. And most of us hold dearly to this reality. But where do you get that idea? You can't just simply say, well, I just came up with it myself, because you didn't. It's a product of something. I came up with it through science. No, science doesn't help you out here. History, good luck. Try to find the love of God by studying history. Your own conscience, you think? Your conscience is shaped by things. Where do you get your idea that God ought to be a God of love? Because you have it, where did it come from? Because it's the only reason you have a problem with hell. See, if you didn't have an idea of the love of God, then just hell it just is. It's just part of the world. It's just part of the universe. It's part of the creation. It's only a problem for us because we hold to the idea of the love of God. You see, they, 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 it's creating its own problem. If, there, if, if we all knew that there was... A, a masochistic God out there, if we all knew that there was a maniacal, which is a great word, by the way, a maniacal God out there, then hell would be the natural result of a sociopath God. You see, like you, so there's, there's a conflict that we have with the idea of hell, but it's because of our concept of the love of God. So where did you get your concept of the love of God? Because you have it. You hope it's true. And so here's the thing, you will only get that from religion. But it's even more precise than that. Because you'll say, oh yeah, of course, all the religions teach that there is a loving God that, 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 that is involved in our lives and that cares for us. Not so. In fact, most every religion does not teach the idea of a loving God. Not Islam, not Hinduism. Not Buddhism, not a per love takes a person. It takes relationship. We're not talking about general benevolence or, or even goodness. We're talking about a God of love. And for that, you need a personal God. So if you have a concept of a personal God who loves you and loves the world, you got that from Christianity. You got that from the Judeo-Christian scriptures. So, of course, now you see the dilemma. If that's the basis for your authority for trusting 
that there is a loving God out there, it's those same scriptures that give us our concept of hell. If you want to cut out the authority that rests under hell, then you cut out the authority that rests under the love of God. You can't have one without the other because they rest upon the authority of the scriptures and particularly upon the authority of Jesus. We look to him and that's where we best see that God is a loving God. And that's why we go to his example and why throughout history it has transformed lives, countless lives, because of his, his conviction that there is a God who desperately loves you and was willing to do anything to bring you back into the fold. But where do we get our teaching from hell? It's not, you know, it's not the Old Testament. We learn very little about hell from the Old Testament. It isn't even mostly from the apostles and the, and the New Testament letters. You know where we learn almost everything we know about hell from? Jesus. He could barely teach without talking about it. Why? Because he knew what was at stake. He talked about it all the time because he wanted people to make a decision to follow him, to trust him. He talked about it all the time because he knew what it was going to cost him, his death on the cross, to give us a way to beat hell and death and judgment. See, if we want to think about what hell is, Hell is the natural result of sin. It's what inevitably takes place. You know, you can think of, you, you can think of you know, these two broad categories, and mostly we think about it as judgment for sin. Like, you know, if you eat that cookie, I'm going to smack your hand, right? And so there you go. That's a judgment for sin. And there's a small piece of, of this conversation that is, in fact, a judgment for sin. But for most of us, that's all we really think about. If you, if you drink and drive, I'm going to take your license away. That's a judgment for sin. You have rebelled against the rules. You have broken the rules. Therefore, you will pay. But there's also a natural result of sin. So if I told you, listen, if you, if you eat that junk food, you're going to ruin your appetite for a really spectacular dinner later on. It's not a judgment for sin, it's the consequence. It's the intrinsic result of that behavior. If I told you, listen, you're drinking and driving, that's not a good plan because you're going to end up hurting someone and you're going to live with a lifetime of guilt and shame and regret. There are consequences to, to your decisions. This is actually one of the more powerful ways of thinking about hell because it is the natural result of our sin. And that, of course, means it is exceedingly serious business. You want to talk about how serious hell is, and just ask yourself, what is your greatest joy? I mean, in this life, what's your greatest joy? Like, what's, what brings more pleasure to your life? What are you going to look back at when, when you're old and at the end of your life and you're looking back, what are the things in your life that you're going to go, that brought me the most amount of joy and delight? You think it's going to be what level you attained in your company or how fancy your car is or how much money is in your bank account? It's not. It's going to be related to the people that you knew and loved and that loved you. It's going to be about relationships. 
And that's the source of our greatest joy. If you want to understand what a natural result of moving away from the source of love is going to do, the result of this is hell. Because hell is, in fact, the absence of love. Dostoevsky, he said that hell is the suffering of being unable to love. The trajectories that we are on brought out into eternity as we have decided to move ourselves out of the presence of God. Because the essence of hell is the loss of relationship. That's the essence of it. And our primary relationship, the one that will bring us the most joy and delight, is the relationship we have with our Creator. And if you have decided that that's not what you want, then of course you move further and further away from the source of joy and peace and hope. So you think of God, right? He is the most loving. He is the most generous. He is the most kind, the most attractive being in the whole of the universe. And he has designed us a certain way. He gave us free will. And he allows us to choose him or to reject him. And in the end, God will actually allow us to get what we insist upon. He will allow it to be so. See, souls are immortal. They never die. They're never snuffed out. They're, they're not annihilated. Which means hell is really the continued journey away from God. If, if you've got a, a fire here and, and you're hanging out near the fire, you experience the warmth. And as you pull yourself away from it, you experience more and more cold. If you've got a party over here and you're hanging out with your friends and you're enjoying their company and their relationship and then suddenly you decide to pull yourself away from it, that was the source of the relationship, the fun, the pleasure, the joy, the delight. You've pulled yourself away from it. We were meant for so much more than hell. And God is standing at the door. He's knocking. And he's saying, don't settle for anything less. But if you insist, I will let it be so. And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, you know what? I've never actually made a decision to surrender my life to Christ. It's not that, you know, I'm... I haven't even really thought about hell. It's not even that you're, maybe you're, maybe, maybe it's not even something that you're thinking was an issue for you. But you're listening here today and you're saying, you know what? I've never actually given Jesus a chance. I've never said, you know what? I'm going to trust him. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to, I want to give you an opportunity today to make that decision. The scriptures are plain. He stands at the door of your life and he is saying, please let me in. Here I am. Open the door. So in a moment, I'm going to just put up a prayer here on the screen. I'm going to ask that like all of us, we'll just read it together. If you've already prayed this prayer, then great, just read it out loud with us. And if for you, this is the first time, I want you to kind of look through these words and think through them. And if they represent 
your, your place with Christ, where you're at. Not, listen, not that you get everything, you figured everything out. The, the reality is we're not, we're not saying you've got you to be comfortable with all these decisions. I'm not saying that you've got to take this doctrine of hell and say, yeah, this is great. I, I understand. I'm, it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if, if on a whole you can look to Christ and say, you know what? I'm going to trust him. I'm going to surrender to him. I'm going to hope and pray that he works these other things out and these parts that I'm confused about and I don't quite understand. I'm going to ask that he gives me more clarity and peace about these things. And maybe for you, this is going to be the, the first time in your life where you have been able to surrender your life fully and completely to him in the best way you know how, even here. That's all it is. It's not a magic prayer or anything like that. It's just a way to establish a decision, a moment where you've said, this will be what I want. So let's pray this out loud together. If this is a reflection of where you're at uh, today, then uh, just pray it out loud with me. Heavenly Father, I am sorry for the things I have done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything which I know is wrong. Thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your Holy Spirit. Please come into my life so I may be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite the band up, and I just want to pray for all of us here this morning. Let's, let's pray. Lord, I just, I'm asking, Lord, that you would meet each person here. Some folks here, Lord, they are frustrated by this whole idea, and they, it makes them angry and even hurt. They can't understand it. And Lord, they, they have used this for years to keep you at arm's length. And Father, I'm praying that you would just soften hearts even now. There are others here, Lord, that we believe this to be true, but we'll never be comfortable with it. It's not something that we will ever like. And yet, Lord, the seriousness of it, it rattles our souls. This is what you tell us is true about this world and about the creation. And Father, that means that we need to be reaching those who are far from you. Make us the men and the women that we need to be. Give us the courage we need, Lord, to bring your good news of hope and salvation to our family and our friends and our neighbors. To all those who are far from you, Lord, and in jeopardy of spending an eternity separated from your love. Give us, Lord, all that we need to see this truth transform how we love, how we sacrifice, how we live. Even today, Lord, draw people here more closely to you. In Christ's name, amen.